Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in once again. And we want to welcome you to the series of interview podcasts at amazic.com, where we talk to industry influencers from various companies that work with Kubernetes, cloud native, and in that ecosystem. And uh, we have a lot more interviews like this. Uh, they're all on amazic.com. So if you could head over there, you'll find a lot of good stuff. We've got interviews, we've got articles. I, like, I write a lot of articles there. There are um, job listings. Uh, there's also event coverage. We cover events like KubeCon, HashiCon, a whole bunch of other happening events uh, in the space. So um, if you're interested and you want to follow what's the latest, what's happening, definitely head over to amazic.com. We have with us today a special guest who is uh, from uh, No Name Security. His name is Philip Verloy. He's the technical evangelist at No Name. So Philip, we want to welcome you. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for uh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. So Philip, if you could tell us a bit about yourself to get started. Uh, what have you been up to? You know, before No Name Security, what's your background like? Uh, if you could just start with that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So um, I've been in the IT industry for over 20 years now. Wow. <laughs> so that's a long time. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, uh, I started on the customer side um, as a system administrator working mostly on, uh, on some, uh, some microsystems equipment. Um, then I moved into consulting uh, for a number of years because I sort of saw that the new and interesting projects were always handled by consultants, not so much the in-house staff. So that's why I jumped into consulting. Mm -hmm. uh, so I mostly did uh, pre-sales. And then since the last 15 years or so, I've been working uh, for various vendors. So VMware, Citrix, Riverbed. I joined um, a cloud data management startup called Rubrik. Uh, I was there for five and a half years as the field CTO. And then for the last six months, I've been at uh, No Name Security as the technical evangelist. So I basically work with uh, customers and partners to try to increase their API security posture. That's awesome. That's awesome. So, um, yeah, uh, you know, so that's going to be our topic today that you just mentioned, API security. And uh, that's what No Name Security specializes in. Um, so, yeah, we're going to talk all about that today. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on it. So uh, to get started, um, you know, I'd like to like us talk about just uh, API attacks. You know, um, what are some of the notable ones that, uh, you know, have been in the news in recent times? And, uh, you know, what are some of the things that we could take away from those news articles, you know, from what these organizations did or didn't do that made them victims to these attacks? Uh, just talk about API attacks in the news, if you will. Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, a fairly recent one was uh, Coinbase. Uh, so that was February of this year. Mm -hmm. um, so the reason that they had an issue is they had a, a flaw in Coinbase trading interface. Okay. So the underlying cause really was a, a bug um, in the logic validation. Mm -hmm. So the idea is they had a, a trading API endpoint where traders could uh, launch uh, trades for specific crypto uh, cryptocurrencies. So the idea is you can submit a trade to a specific order book. Um, mm -hmm. And what happened here is that they didn't really check the source account. So the way it worked was um, you had a user 
uh, with two accounts. In one account, they held cheap cryptocurrency, let's say uh, Chibu Inu, and a second mm -hmm. account, they held a more expensive cryptocurrency like Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. What they did is they submitted a market order to the Bitcoin uh, US dollar order book to sell, let's say, 100 Bitcoin. Whoa. But before they launched the order, they manually edited the API request. And instead of specifying their Bitcoin account, they specified their Shibu Inu account with the cheaper oh. cryptocurrency. There was still validation on the side of Coinbase. So they validated, yes, this person has a hundred of this cryptocurrency, but they forgot to check if it was the matching cryptocurrency. So they did not check again for Bitcoin wow. versus Shibu Inu. They just checked for the number hundred. So this way, this person was able to sell a hundred Bitcoin for the price of a hundred Shibu Inu. Um, so that was a, yeah, a very unfortunate event for Coinbase, a fortunate event for this researcher. Actually, this person did not really take advantage of it. He, he okay. disclosed it using, I think, HackerOne for a, for a bug bounty. Mm. Um, but these types of logic validation issues, that's typically uh, what we see more and more these days. Um, and it's hard to defend against as a company, right? Because you might have a perfectly written API, but depending on how the backend sort of operates, uh, we do see a lot of issues with validating those inputs and those kinds of stacked inputs as well. Um, so it happens all of the time. There's there's other notable ones like Peloton, which is a is one that's quoted a lot in public. So uh, the exercise bike company Peloton. Uh, I believe even U.S. President Biden uses Peloton. So the idea is they had an unauthenticated API that you could query and just get all of this personal information back from, um, which is, you know, not what you want. If I can sort of understand who is using Peloton, uh, how how their health is uh, uh, is changing over time, for example, things like that. That's that's uh, uh, that's not the best thing. Uh, so those things they they you know they they happen all of the time. Mm. Um, I think the yeah. problem with APIs or what can a, a company do about it? Uh, the problem is there's there's little commonality between these API attacks. Meaning, could, could we hold on to that thought for a bit because we'll get to that uh, soon. But uh, you know the, the solution to this, we'll get to that. But I just uh, wanted to uh, dig in a little more and ask you know so these that you mentioned are not necessarily attacks, they're more lapses, right? They're more like uh, uh, vulnerabilities from the inside. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so it's interesting that, you know, that, and in fact, probably more than attacks, this is more common, right? Uh, someone forgets to, you know, secure uh, something the right way in the API, and then, you know, that becomes a vulnerability. That's probably more common than an attack, right? Would you say that? Yeah, yeah. So, so if you look at, for example, um, OWASP um, um, has this list of the the OWASP API top ten vulnerabilities, and a lot of these vulnerabilities are indeed things like, oh, they forgot to implement decent authentication, they did not check authorization in a uh, in a specific way or a very meaningful way. So there are sort of misconfiguration type of situations where you can simply walk through the front door of the API, so to speak, and query the information that you want to get back. Mm -hmm. um, but then there's also more sophisticated, quote unquote, real attacks as well, uh, mm -hmm. where they go after the manipulation of the of the business logic. Um, mm -hmm. So it's yeah. it's those two that we see uh, combined a lot. Yeah. 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 Wow. 
Uh, could you talk a bit about just the life cycle of an API vulnerability or attack? Uh, you know, how it starts, how it progresses, when do people actually find out, you know, after how long do they find out, you know, what's the potential impact? You've given us some good examples, but if you could sort of uh, trace it back a bit to where, you know, it starts and how it progresses and sort of tell us about the life cycle, that'll be great. Sure. So, so this is actually an interesting one because it really speaks to the the heart of the difference between a traditional web application attack, I should say, and a more complicated or a more involved API type logic attack that we see these days. So for a, a traditional web application attack, you can typically use like signature-based blocking tools, web application firewall. Uh, so those tools are great at stopping you know, high-frequency requests or blocking a system that generates a lot of uh, request failures, for example, things like that. So if you're going after, you know, SQL injection, cross-site scripting, these are these typical one and done type of attacks. So when you talk about how long does it take, these are typically people that launch an attack against your web application and they either get in or they don't get in. Mm -hmm. um, for APIs, it's typically more uh, different or different in a sense that uh, the more sophisticated ones, they try to determine the logic that's offered by the application. Um, okay. The application is then accessible via the API. And those are typically more in the, the, the low and slow type of uh, scenario. So if I make a request to a certain API, I get a response back. What can I learn from this response? Mm. So this is more of a, an attack that takes a longer time because you really have to investigate how is this application responding back to me? What mm -hmm. can I do with this piece of information that I now learned from doing a GET request to a certain endpoint? Can I take that as an input to talk to another API endpoint, for example? So these attacks typically uh, take longer. Um, and, and the idea then is uh, you have to take those learnings as an attacker and then implement them or use them in, in sort of your next step to gain further access into the system. Um, so that's something that we see a lot, or you just misuse badly implemented you know, authorization uh, or even sometimes lack of authentication. Um, so it's, it's usually a combination of those attacks. So it's not really uh, a scenario where you can say, oh, a typical attack takes you know, hours or weeks um, it, it really depends on, you know, how open your front door is, uh, in a more traditional web, web, uh, type of attack. It's, it's, it's really quick. Uh, like I said, one and done, uh, but for APIs, it's typically, it takes some investigation and takes some time and it's much more thought, thought out. Mm, okay. Okay. Interesting. Uh, you know, if you could, uh, if you could follow up on that, talking about just, uh, you know, um, these, uh, you know, so developers obviously want to build APIs fast, you know, enable more functionality in their applications, you know, but uh, in, in this push to like move faster, release more frequently, uh, obviously, you know, uh, stuff gets forgotten, misconfigured. Uh, you know, if, if uh, I like talking about just how, you know, uh, um, kind of getting into the solution part, uh, how do we, meet these two goals of, you know, um, making sure that APIs can be built fast and released mm -hmm. fast at the same time that security is not, uh, you know, uh, left out of it, out of that whole process. How can you meet both these goals as a, as a thinking of it from a developer, as well as from the operator's perspective? 
Yeah, sure, sure. So so developers, they need to move fast, as you say. Um, and that's what they should do because of the competitive nature of business, right? So we are, are all competing on this global stage uh, organizationally. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the business is sort of forcing them to move as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea is if you want to then include good security hygiene as, mm-hmm. as part of the development process, we need to make that as seamless as, as possible. Okay. Um, so I think from a best practices perspective, there are like a whole slew of baseline security best practices we can implement for APIs. Okay. So we can validate um, APIs that they are building before releasing them into production. The idea is we want to point out any blind spots that still exist and then show developers how to mitigate uh, these blind spots. Mm-hmm. So. The only way I think this works is you have to make this part of their existing workflow. So, okay. so in our case, the idea is we, we want to integrate security validation into their existing CI/CD pipelines mm-hmm. and, and offer the remediation action from their existing tool set. So if they're using Azure DevOps or they're using Jenkins or they're using Circle CI or tools like that, they shouldn't be forced to jump out of those tools and jump out of that context to understand what the security posture of the, the API is that they're building. So to some extent, I think APIs are like cats and you want them to be like cats because cats are unique and they're very creative. But the problem is you cannot have all of the cats walk in the same direction. Like it's very hard to tell cats exactly what to do. It's also very hard to tell developers exactly what to do. So the focus should be on sneaking in those security best practices to to a certain extent, make it as as unintrusive as possible, but just make it part of their natural workflow, so you're not disturbing their rhythm, uh, so to speak. I as a, as a quick example, I, I I saw a session from AWS Reinforce uh, a couple of days ago, and there they pointed out that uh, I believe it was fourteen percent, so one four percent of developers uh, list security as a top priority when when writing code. So there's a lot of work to be done on the shift left piece to make sure we are pushing out uh, secure code, uh, but at the same time, as quickly as, as humanly possible as well. Mm. So what are some of the one-time tasks that need to be done maybe initially uh, you know, to make sure that the APIs that are created are secure? And what are some of the ongoing maintenance uh, stuff that needs to get done and even how you can kind of automate this uh, maintenance of, you know, just secured, securing APIs over the long term. Uh, could you just give us some of the operational perspective? What does it involve? Yeah, so I think one thing I think to realize as a security professional or a security operations person is that there's no such thing as a greenfield deployment typically. So even if you're talking to developers, the organization it has already APIs in, in production. Mm-hmm. Um, so we need to make sure that we understand what those APIs are, who has access to those APIs, how are they configured and so on. Mm-hmm. So from a security operations perspective, the initial task I would say is to build a full inventory of all of the APIs that are in use. And this is typically um, a, a difficult thing to understand because if we go to a customer from our perspective as no name, for example, and, and I'm sure this is true for, for all of our 
um, uh, competitors as well is we find a lot of unknown APIs in a typical organization. Mm -hmm. So developers have put in internal APIs with the idea of, oh, I'm gonna take away that internal API and I'm gonna close that um, access once we go into production and so on. And then they forget about it or they version it and they leave some things open. Mm -hmm. So getting a good inventory is a good uh, first step. So that's something that you always have to have to start with, I think. And then it's about understanding the security posture of, of your APIs. Mm -hmm. The idea is if you look at APIs in production, you have to figure out how are the APIs used uh, in the real world? And can we take learnings from how they are used in the real world and potentially change our API design to get to a higher level of, of API security, security posture? So in terms of, you know, one-off operations, I think it's more like a, a loop, uh, kind of like a DevOps loop or a DevSecOps loop, if you will. The idea is we always need to reinforce our learnings from production and, and bring that back to implementing secure code. And the reason I say that is that, again, each and every API tends to be different. Yes, there are some basic steps that you have to do, implement decent authentication, uh, implement uh, the least privileged access and so on. So those are design choices that you absolutely have to make, but typically each API is custom built. So the security for those APIs has to take into account their custom business logic. So that's really the difficulty that we're sort of talking about when it comes to API security. Mm, interesting. And uh, you know, so all of this is a lot to do, and especially when there's thousands of APIs, it's hard to do it manually. So how do solutions like yours, you know, no name security uh, and the others, how, how do these API security solutions help with this? For example, with the inventory, uh, you know, taking inventory of all your APIs, how, how does it help? Does it help with that? And then all of this, you know, the feedback loop from production to uh, development. Uh, yeah, how, how, do, how do API security solutions help with these things? Yeah, absolutely. So basically what we do in order to establish a full inventory of uh, what you are using is, um, and this sort of goes back to when we first started talking about things like network virtualization. And in network virtualization, you heard a lot about, you know, north-southbound traffic versus east-westbound traffic. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is still the case uh, for APIs as well, whereby if you have existing tools, you have web application firewalls, you have API gateways, these are typically used to uh, demark uh, north-south traffic, right? So the traffic that goes external, maybe to your business partners or to consumers, that traffic passes sort of your north-south boundary. But when we talk about creating an inventory, we need to see all of the traffic, even internal traffic. Um, so that's why you need a system that can really take in all kinds of traffic from you know, public cloud sources, from gateways, um, from internal network devices. Combine all of these traffic sources together and sort of filter out API-specific communication there. And that's what we use to build uh, a full inventory. So as long as there is something, and this could be a machine, this could be a user, something talking to an API endpoint, we will see it because it is part of that flow somehow uh, that we are capturing across the entire um, organization. Very neat, very neat. Yeah, and, and what about with, you know, like what you're talking about, the feedback loop uh, from production, other ways that the solutions help with that as well? 
Yeah, so what we can do is um, basically our platform sort of consists of three pillars, if I can call it like that. So we okay. have the, the testing pillar, which is sort of step one. How can we help developers implement secure code? Mm -hmm. um, then we have posture management and runtime security. What okay. we can do is we can take that runtime security piece, so all of the actual real-time network traffic, and use that as an input for the testing module. So we can okay. see the actual wow. consumption of the APIs. We can use that as a description of how we feel the API works and put that into the testing suite so we can now validate the security uh, of that system without forcing the developer to create documentation, create things like um, you know, a Swagger file, a set of curl commands, something that mm -hmm. describes the API is then uploaded to our system and we will validate it. Of course, yeah. we can do that as well. Um, but we can also take our production system as input for the testing engine as well. So that's why this sort of loop is, nice. is sort of self-reinforcing, if you will. So to understand, right, we're not actually deploying the API. So without even uh, releasing it, we're able to test how it could perform in production, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah. So as long as you give us some sort of description of the API, and this is during development, so it's not deployed yet. Mm -hmm. um, we talk to that endpoint that is being deployed, so it's running somewhere, let's say as a as a an alpha version internally on the on the uh, the testing environment, mm -hmm. uh, and we can reach out to it and sort of validate its uh, API security posture. Really neat. Uh, what's this feature called again on Nonium Security? What's the name of the feature? Uh, so the testing uh, module is called Active Testing. Active Testing. Okay. Cool. So uh, viewers, you got to check that out if this sounds interesting. It definitely sounds interesting to me and I want to read more about it. So active testing. Um, so yeah, uh, I want to also talk a bit about, uh, so a lot of the APIs these days, they, they're hosted in uh, you know service, cloud services like AWS API Gateway. And, and these services, they have some language around, you know, security and all of that, you know, so I want to just ask you, you know, what kind of security are they talking about and how is it different from the API security solutions that they provide? And in other words, is, uh, is having your APIs hosted in AWS API gateway enough for security or is that not adequate? Right, right. So I think there, even the old security adage of you can only secure what you can see is sort of valid, meaning the gateway has a lot of uh, security capabilities built in, mm -hmm. and it can protect against certain types of attacks. So okay. it can enforce things like um, the usage of um, you know, specific patterns and so on. Mm -hmm. But again, the, the gateway can only see the traffic that passes through the gateway. So okay. back to that finding up to 30, sometimes 40% of unknown APIs inside a given environment, that is something that that gateway device will be blind to. It won't be managed via the via the gateway. Um, the other thing is unknown attacks. So a gateway is also very good at um, uh, doing signature-based uh, security. So blocking something that passes through the gateway or enforcing a certain uh, level of encryption for tokens, for example. But how do you um, employ that type of checking if the application that you're protecting is sort of unknown. So if you can't even predict the sequence in which these API calls are done uh, through a specific API, or if you have more dynamic APIs uh, like GraphQL, for example, it's very hard to implement static security checking against those dynamic 
uh, environment. So that's why you still need a system that really understands the business logic uh, that is used with those APIs. And in our case, employ machine learning to establish a baseline of normal behavior for those APIs. And once we have a baseline, we can start to find outliers that deviate from that baseline, which are a, an indication of somebody is trying to do something malicious, uh, is trying to manipulate how the API is normally accessed or normally used. And that's what we will respond to. Whilst still talking to the, to the API gateway in Amazon, for example, and asking the gateway to block certain, certain traffic. So it's not that we are gonna advocate for replacing these tools because these tools, they have a lot of value, but it's more about giving them context and showing them all of the API security pieces that they're missing by augmenting what you already have. Okay, yeah, that's great. That's a great point. So to summarize, well, to summarize this response, I'd say, you know, um, AWS API gateway and other services like that, that host APIs, they don't have full visibility into traffic and you need a dedicated API security solution to get that end-to-end -end visibility into traffic. Uh, that's great. Um, you know, and I want to dig in a little bit more about uh, what you were talking about, machine learning. Uh, if you could, you know, it sounded really interesting how you're talking about uh, it detects anomalies. If you could just uh, explain a bit more to the specifics of how NoName uses machine learning. Uh, to you know, detect uh, API security threats using yeah machine learning. Yeah, absolutely. So from our end, um, we use unsupervised machine learning. So the idea okay. is that we are put in certain environments where we do not want to rely upon some sort of external data lake or something like that to validate API calls. Mm -hmm. That's why it's unsupervised because in a lot of the um, let's say environments that we're put into, we are sort of in an offline data center, for example, and we don't know what the application looks like. So the system has no baseline of information that we can use to figure out if this is normal behavior or not, meaning for each and every API individually, we're gonna have to learn what normal looks like. Mm -hmm. So we're gonna have to build that, that baseline. So that's why we use unsupervised machine learning. Mm -hmm. You put us in the environment, it takes us a couple of days, depending on you know, how heavily is the API used and so on takes us a couple of days to build this baseline of what we feel is normal activity and normal behavior. Once we have that baseline, new API calls are validated against that baseline. And then if we see things that are different, we will respond. So for example, let's say you have an API where you can query user data. Mm -hmm. And typically what we see is that a user logs in and this user only queries his or her own data. So it only reads information from its own user account. Then after the machine learning has created that baseline, somebody logs in with a single user credential and starts to query uh, user details from a lot of different users. So we will then respond and say, this is not what we were expecting here. For us, this looks like malicious traffic because normally a single user doesn't perform this type of operation. An administrator might perform this type of operation, but normally a, a normal single user account won't. So for us, that's then uh, a deviation from the baseline. So we will respond to that, show uh, our customer that there's a potential uh, malicious use of the API, and then um, show them a, a remediation step. And at the same time, block that specific user by removing their 
authentication token, removing an IP address, depending on how we can identify uh, that, that specific user. Very cool. I like how it doesn't just alert and spot it, but it also proactively blocks. So, you know, this could happen in the middle of the night when no one is around and, you know, to take action and, you know, you wake up in the morning and you know that something's been quarantined, something's been blocked and you can, you know, uh, analyze and see, you know, uh, what's the threat. Uh, I think that's really cool. That's really powerful. Wow. That's amazing. Uh, you know, so uh, I want to ask about, um, you know, the role of open source in API security, do, do you see anything interesting happening in the open source space? Open source is quite uh, powerful today. A lot of companies use them alongside the, uh, you know, the, the commercial solutions as well. What, what do you see in the open source space? Yeah, yeah. I think the open source uh, solutions are, are super interesting and could be super powerful. So for API specifically, there's a, a whole bunch of interesting open source tools um, out there. Um, it, it starts from, um, you know, linting tools to validate your, your code, for example. So you upload your API description and then those open source linting tools, they, they validate your code, they validate your input just to make sure that you're not, uh, you're not putting undeclared variables out there, et cetera, which can then potentially be misused uh, during an API attack. So they help you write to a specific level of secure specification, if, if you will. Um, but there's also open source pen testing tools um, that are good at finding, you know, static security issues. Um, there's also API learning tools um, to understand uh, or to help you understand like security aspects of an API in a in a mock uh, environment. So there's, for example, the, the crappy API tool, uh, which is sort of a playground uh, where you can test against this vulnerable backend API and see, you know, how much damage you can cause. Um, so all of these things are, are very helpful in, in understanding and learning about uh, APIs and API security. Um, there's, a, there's a nice list out there on, uh, I believe the website is uh, nordicapis.com. Uh, okay. So they keep a, a fairly up-to-date list of, of a bunch of open source tools uh, that you can uh, try out and, and play with, which I uh, rec highly recommend. Yeah. Neat, nordicapis.com, awesome. Uh, as we wind down, uh, my last question for you, what are you most excited about in uh, that's happening right now in terms of API security, uh, whether it's from no name itself or just in the ecosystem generally? Uh, what are you most excited right now or what do you most look forward to in the coming months uh, in terms of API security? Yeah, I think from, from a where the field is going perspective, um, Gartner has sort of uh, pointed out, and they've done this a number of years ago already, that this year is going to be the year where API attacks will become the most frequent attack factor. And we continue to see proof of that. Um, I'm not saying I'm excited about an increase of attacks, but it mm -hmm. does mean that there's an increase in um, people hearing about this and yeah. putting... Um, emphasis on it uh, and, and trying to close these uh, close these gaps before they uh, they become really problematic. Um, a lot of work to do in, in educating the market still and, and implementing some of these uh, some of these controls. Mm -hmm. um, another thing that I'm excited about is uh, we use a lot of machine learning in our platform already. The, the thing that we see is there's a real shortage in um, staff uh, in staffing up your security um, personnel that's that's becoming really problematic 
So I'm excited about the potential of artificial intelligence and AI ops in particular to sort of augment um, some of the security gaps that, that are out there and, and sort of using these big data platforms and so on um, mm -hmm. to help uh, people understand really the influx <laughs> of all of these logs and all of these tools that are generating all of these events to really filter through that and, and really understand holistically what is going on with their security. Um, so I think, yeah, I'm excited for AI ops to sort of uh, um, um, start to really uh, um, shine and, and, uh, and help people implement uh, good security uh, best practices. All right. Great. Thank you so much for sharing all of those insights. Uh, it was uh, really interesting to hear your take on API security. And I want to encourage our viewers, if all of this sounds interesting that Philip just uh, spoke about, head over to No Name Security's website and uh, check out their offering and see how they help uh, with uh, securing APIs and all of these things that Philip just mentioned, the use of machine learning, uh, the, the ability to test before you deploy uh, active uh, testing, I think. Uh, yeah, you know, check out all of these things on No Name Security's website. Um, so that we come to the last segment, uh, fun segment where we get to know a bit about Philip. So we have a couple of questions for him. Uh, so Philip, you set, you ready? Yeah, yeah. Cool. So this question gets some interesting answers. Uh, and I love asking this, uh, your alternate career path, if not for your job in tech. Yeah, so uh, I think it's tech adjacent though. <laughs> so I, okay. I would love to work in the commercial space exploration industry. Uh, so things like uh, SpaceX or Origin, for example, uh, that okay. would be super interesting. Unfortunately, because they work for the U.S. government, they only accept U.S. citizens or people with green cards. So it's not oh, going to okay. happen soon. But uh, <laughs> yeah, that would definitely be uh, my career path, uh, if possible. Yeah. Do, you, do you dream of it, of someday, like, you know, setting foot on Mars or something? You have those kind of dreams? Or are you more interested in just building stuff and working with the... Uh, you know the tech definitely the building part yeah yeah i would love okay. to be uh, uh involved in in making that happen for somebody else but it wouldn't be me that's going to uh, <laughs> to populate mars no. <laughs> neat, neat. you're the safe one <laughs> yeah yep. uh, one thing you're a pro, you're a pro at you're an expert at could be a sport or a hobby or a skill um yeah so i would say in like, you know, 20 years and 50 pounds ago, I used to play uh, semi-professional basketball. Um, <laughs> I'm based in Belgium, so it's really semi-professional. Oh, um, right. But uh, yeah, I played basketball in some of the uh, local uh, leagues here. So that's something I still enjoy uh, as an amateur. But um, yeah, working at a startup, um, I must say most of my time sort of goes into, uh, into building out uh, startup organizations these days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> neat, neat. Um, so if you could travel back in time, when and where would you go? Um, yeah, I think so. So next to sort of my my dream of working in space exploration, I'm also a bit of a, a physics uh, nerd. Uh, so I like uh, if, if I could go back to the 60s and, and, and attend like a, a class at Caltech with Richard Feynman, for example, that's something that I would love to do and love to see in real life. I've seen the recordings. But I would have loved uh, loved to be there, um, and if not that, alternatively, like the start of Sun Microsoft. I've, I've 
So my first job was working with some microsystems um, uh, environments, and I would love to have been there in the in the 80s uh, and and worked next to uh, people like Andy Bechtelstein uh, when uh, when some microsystems got started. <laughs> wow, you're a true geek at heart. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Uh, your favorite tech speaker or presenter? Uh, that's definitely Scott Hanselman. So Scott Hanselman of Microsoft. Uh, I've seen a lot of his talks, uh, both recorded and, and live at things like Microsoft Ignite and so on. So I think he's a, a really brilliant, engaging speaker. He's also very down to earth. He's also really invested in, in um, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives. He really tries to pull people of all different backgrounds into tech, really trying to, you know, push aside gatekeepers, open paths for people. Uh, I really love what he's doing, but but his presentations and his speaking is just, if you just focus on that, it's also really, really good. So Scott Hanselman, uh, definitely check him out on YouTube. Really cool, really cool. Yeah, uh, your last question, Philip. Uh, where do you find the most engaging tech conversations happening today? Um, I think if you're good at, at curation, Twitter is still a good option. Okay. Um, I think Twitter Spaces is also interesting today. So there's a bunch of interesting um, sort of reoccurring Twitter Spaces that happen on, on a weekly basis. Mm -hmm. um, one that I'm sort of following is um, um, there's one by Brian Cantrell, who is now the CTO at Oxide oh, yeah. Computer. He's a giant. Yeah. So that's a, that's a super interesting one. It's a nerdy hangout, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's, that's something I would recommend. Um, and then if, if you're into like uh, one-sided conversations, and of course, there's a lot of interesting, super interesting podcasts that you can uh, consume and sort of keep abreast with what's happening in the industry. All right. All right. Cool. Twitter spaces. I should check that out. Awesome. So uh, that is, that's a wrap. So uh, Philip, if you could tell us where we could find you online. Um, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, you can uh, find me on, on Twitter. So I'm at Philip V, Philip with an F. Uh, on Twitter, and I'm also pretty active on LinkedIn. So if you just uh, search Philip Furloy on, on LinkedIn, I'm, I'm sure you'll find me. So those are the two places I'm most active at. Awesome. Great. So that's it, viewers. Thank you for tuning in again. And I hope you really enjoyed this conversation with Philip. Uh, do check out the other interviews we have at amazic.com. That's A-M-A-Z-I-C. And uh, we've got a whole bunch of stuff as well. Apart from interviews, we've got uh, job listings and event coverage, a lot happening. So do go to amazing.com and uh, follow us and stay tuned on what we do. Uh, with that, I'd like to thank Philip again for joining us. It was a pleasure, Philip, talking with, talking with you today. And, pleasure was uh, all mine. Thanks for having me. Yeah. All right. So that's about it for today. Signing off. Thank you.